0: Okay, so we pick up this week with Parshas by Sein. the uh, month of Kislev is upon us <coughs> and actually uh, before beginning uh, the year this evening uh, I just wanted to mention that the uh, Hanukkah Sefer which uh, written a couple of years ago was published a couple of years ago has been reprinted it's back in stock uh, looks like this Hanukkah capturing the light uh, and it's available in um, Svarim stores, Israel, States, and uh, United Kingdom. So, Kaldichvin, uh, Yese whoever obtains a copy, I hope they uh, enjoy it. <coughs> in the meanwhile, a good bit of Jewish history uh, has to happen uh, before Hanukkah happens, and uh, no better place to start than the weekly Parsha, Parsha Svayetze. So. Vayetse focuses on uh, Yaakov uh, leaving home and going to, to Lavan's house. Rashi <coughs> does not wait too long in the parsha before getting involved, and uh, he comments, in fact, on the opening word Vayetse. And let us see his words. Vayyetsay says Rashi, Lo ayatzirich lechtov vayelech Yaakov. The Pasuk only needed to say that Yaakov went to Haran. I mean, that's really the point, if we're picking up. I mean, we we know that he's left home, uh, and therefore it should have cut to the chase and and taken us to Haran. Why then does it mention, or make a point of mentioning, the fact that he left? That we know. Ella, rather, it teaches us, Magid, when a tzaddik leaves a place, it makes an impression. His his exit, his his absence, more correctly, makes an impression. How so? ba'ir. Because as long as the tzaddik is in the town, Huhoda he is its glory, who ziva he is its glow, who hadora he is its splendor. Yatsamisham. and When the tzaddik leaves, panahoda, panaziva, Panahadara, all of those things, the splendor of the town leaves, the glory of the town leaves, the glow of the town leaves—and that's why the verse makes a point of, of emphasizing, "Vayetsa <coughs> Yaakov." Yaakov left. His leaving was also an event. And I think the Rashi is, is well known. but the, There's an accompanying question, which is raised by many Mepharshim. As we know, Rashi generally will uh, tend to make a comment on the first available opportunity in the Chumash where that, uh, that comment or, or grounds for that comment present themselves. In our case, Rashi is saying, the Torah tells us the Tzaddik left. Well, that must be to teach us that when the Tzaddik leaves... It makes an impression. (coughs) The problem is, Yaakov is not the first tzaddik in the Torah to be recorded as leaving a place. For that, we have Avram Avinu. In the beginning of Parshas Lech Lecha, as Avram makes his trip from Haran to Eretz Canaan, the Torah says, Kanaan. They left to go to, to Eretz Kanaan, and there, too, <coughs> one could ask a similar question. Why say Vayetsu? What is that telling me? Is it not telling me whether well, Tzaddik leaves? It makes an impression. Why, then, did Rashi withhold from making the, uh, his comment on what seems to be the first available opportunity, waiting rather for this second time with uh, Yaakov Avinu? Now, many Mepharsim discussed this question and many answers have been given. But I'd like to, to um, present two this evening. <coughs> the first is from one of the lesser-known commentators on Rashi. And uh, there have been many uh, over, the, over the generations and the centuries. This is a sefer which is called Or Yashar, written by uh, Rabbi Yamin Zev Hartman. I don't know that much about him. I've only ever seen two copies of this sefer. Uh, one in Rav Kuperman's library and the other in my father's, that's Al's library, which, which I now have. Um, so it's not an easy, safer to, to come by. But the Oyashar says, if we, if our question was, why did Rashi not avail himself of the first opportunity to tell us that the leaving of a tzaddik makes an impression, <coughs> we do have a, a sub-principle. As a rule, Rashi will tell us something the first time the occasion presents itself, unless... There is more to be learned from the second occasion. There is an additional element to be gleaned from the later instance. And that is the case here. Why? Because, (coughs) what do we say? When the Tzadik leaves town, it makes an impression. Let's have a think for a moment about, about Avram and Yaakov. Both Avos, both of course... Tzadikim, but very different in their demeanor, very different in the way that they do things. Avram, as we know, is very outgoing. He is hospitable. He talks to people. He encourages them. He inspires them. A very public figure. And he, he gives them kindness. He hosts people, etc. and so forth. And so, if someone were to say, after Avram left Haran, do you feel the difference? Would you say that the town has lost something? The answer is, of course it's lost something. It's lost its Malavamalkas. Malkas. It's lost the whole uh, scene that surrounded Avram. It is, it is so obvious that things are different because he was such a public figure. Yaakov <coughs> is not like that. Yaakov, as we know, Is uh, described by the Torah as Ishtam, Yosheva Halim. Rashi tells us what that means is that uh, he would spend his time in the tense of learning, of Shem, and of Aver. Interestingly, and parenthetically, uh, there is a well known expression, the Yeshiva of Shem, the Aver. It happens to be (coughs) that Shem and Aver each had their own Yeshiva. And that is why when it says he, that Yaakov was Yoshiva eva holim the tents in the plural, it's because there were two tents, the tent of Shem and the tent of Ever. Presumably, divide and conquer. If they have two yeshivas, they'll be able to have further reach and further impact. <coughs> so just with regards to the, the well-known phrase of the yeshiva of Shem Aver, there was no yeshiva of Shem Aver. The, there were the yeshivos of Shem Ever. Either way, Yaakov divides his time between those two yeshivas. He's not such a public figure um, and and it could be that many people in the town didn't really know him. And in such a case or with reference to a tzaddik like that perhaps one may have thought (coughs) that when he leaves town no one notices. No one even noticed him when he was there. Why should they notice when he's gone? But it's not so. Because it is the nature of a tzaddik, by being a tzaddik, that he brings blessing and splendor to the place. Even if it's not quantifiable, even if you can't say, well, he did that, or hosted that event, or, or that uh, group of people, nonetheless, that's why we're told specifically, <coughs> in the case of Yaakov, the private person, that even when he leaves, when a tzaddik like that leaves, the town doesn't know what it's lost, but it will know that something is different. I mean, that is really the, the important thing to know about the influence of a tzaddik on his surroundings. I'm mindful, and I would not say that he had this in mind, because I would not presume to say what Rebhaim Ozugurjensky had in mind, ever, <coughs> unless he says so. But uh, the, it is told that someone came to Vilna, and they, they brought him, of course, in to see the Avbezdin Rebhaim Ozugurjensky. And uh, so the the one who was showing this distinguished visitor around said, I've I've shown him all the treasures of Vilna, and Vilna had plenty treasures. But Reb Chaim Ozer responded and said, You are showing him the treasures of Vilna? Have you taken him to see the Chazanish? (coughs) The Chazanish at that time was an unknown Torah scholar, spent his days and nights involved in Torah. But I think that what what Reb Chaim Ozer is saying is, He's the treasure of Vilna, and people don't even know him. But, that, but, that, but that's a treasure, if you want to show him the treasures already. And, and this, therefore, is the important lesson of the impact of every tzaddik, even tzaddikim, who are not formally public figures. And the truth of the matter is, this understanding of Rashi's point is corroborated by the second example that Rashi brings. And Rashi quotes it, in fact. Rashi concludes by saying, similarly, we have a similar phenomenon <coughs> on the words, ha-makom ha-amor That's a quotation from Megillas Rus, referring to, to Naami and Rus leaving Moab and going back to the to, to, to land of Israel after the famine had abated says Rashi, you see, once again, the the verse emphasizes, she left because her leaving made a difference to the place. And this is is really unbelievable because uh, as far as we know, once again, Nami is not a a, a public figure. We don't assume that she had much interaction with her surroundings. She's in the land of Moab. The only two Moabites that she had interaction with were her two daughters-in-law. She's not exactly mingling with other people. Most people, once again, would probably not have known who, who she was. Or maybe that, that woman who, who, who keeps to herself and is by herself. <coughs> and when she leaves, has Moab changed? Was Moab impacted? Even Moab. And that's why Rashi says the point is the same. Nami is a private person. Nami, indeed it's fair to say, is, is probably the, what one could call the unsung heroine of Megillah's Rus. I mean, Rus is the sung heroine with, with just cause. But we don't hear that much from Naomi. Naomi seems to be purely reactive or, or, or responsive to Rus. She's just the person that Rus takes care of. She's the person that Rus goes back to. We don't hear much from Nami. Uh and, and that's why we need a Rashi like this to tell us that, that Nami is the, is the primary tzaddikist there. And the truth of the matter is, one can really perceive it from the story of Rus itself by asking a very simple question. We understand that Rus comes back with Nami because she wants to help Nami. Nami's all alone, Rus needs to help her. The, there is a disarming question here. Why does Rus need to become Jewish? If you're not Jewish and you want to help someone who's Jewish... You don't have to convert to Judaism in order to do so. You can remain where you are, be a good person, and, and help someone who you think needs help. <clears throat> so, so the major element of the story where Rus converts to Judaism, but for what? That doesn't help Nami. But the point is, Rus does not convert to Judaism to be able to help Nami. She converts to Judaism because, because Nami is Jewish. And Rus wants to be like Nami. Nami is Rus' role model. You can see it from the way she speaks to her. When she says, I want to become Jewish, she doesn't say what most people say. Namely, I want to become Jewish. She says, your people are my people. Your God is my God. Where you go, I go. In other words, what Rus is saying is, I want to be the way that you are. If you are the way you are because that's your God, so then that's my God. If you are the way you are because that's your people, so then that's my people. It's a very important um, uh, element w- within the story that I think it's easy to overlook. And yet, you see the, the righteousness of Naomi <coughs> is highlighted by this Rashi here. When we, we apply now, there are two people who have the distinction that they're leaving left an impression Yaakov Avinu and Naomi. That's good company. That, that, that gives us a, a renewed appreciation or a heightened appreciation of Naomi. Adkan from the R, Yosher. So, once again, if we could summarize. The point is, a a, a, a tzaddik who's in the public sphere will will naturally and tangibly make an impression when he leaves. But even a private tzaddik, like Yaakov in his way, or or, uh, Nami in her way, uh, it also leaves an impression. It makes a difference to the place. The second approach, which, which relates once again to the question as to why Rashi saved, so to speak, his comment about the leaving of a tzaddik, makes an impression, did not talk about it with Avram, but spoke about it rather in Yaakov's case, is found in the commentary of the Mascula David. Rabbi David Pardot, one of the classic commentaries, better known uh, commentaries on Rashi. <coughs> and the Mascula David says like this, if you want to compare the leaving of Avram to the leaving of Yaakov and and see what there is to discuss between them so ask a simple question who did they leave behind who was there once they had left in Avram's case there is one sadik there, or or two, that is to say Avram and Sara, but if we talk about Avram, it's Avram and when he leaves, that's it and moreover, anyone who, who one could say is Avram-friendly, left with him. Because Hanefesh Asha Asha'osu B'choran, the group that was attracted to Avram, left with them. So who are you, who's left behind? No one of note. So you go from, from a place having a tzaddik to having no tzaddik. Do you think that's a different place now? Of course it is. There's no tzaddik left anymore. In a sense, it's more or less obvious. That is not the case with Yaakov. When we consider, when Yaakov left Be'er Sheva, what shall we say? No tzaddikim left. That's not true. Yitzchak is left. Rivka is left. And for that matter, Aver is left. Back to Shem Aver. Shem by that stage, was no longer alive. Aver is still there. His, his yeshiva is in Be'er Sheva. These are three big tzaddikim. And therefore, there may have been room to say, you know, if you've started with four tzaddikim, and now you're down to three, <coughs> I would say, we, this, the, tzaddik still has, the, the, the place still has tzaddikim. It's not like there's no one there anymore. Okay, so Yaakov isn't there. but the, To that end, Rashi says, when Yaakov leaves, the splendor leaves. What shall we say? There was no one left? There were still people left. There were tzaddikim left. But each tzaddik has his own glow. Each tzaddik has his own splendor. Each tzaddik brings glory (coughs) to the place that even other tzaddikim do not. And that's why Rashi saved his comment here, to tell you that, that each tzaddik is a treasure in his own right, cannot be substituted for by another tzaddik, and his absence is felt even if there are other tzaddikim remaining. So these are very interesting um, comments by the Moforshi Rashi on this well-known, I think, comment of Rashi, when the tzaddik leaves, makes an impression. Well, as Yaakov is on his journey, he comes to... Uh, he has his famous dream, which is really described in the ensuing verses with the ladder, and, and then Hashem appears to him, and then <coughs> promises him that He will look after him and, and take care of him and bring him back and protect him. Then, when Yaakov wakes up, and let's let's uh, move to pasuk Tet Zion and Pet of Perik Kaf So when Yaakov wakes up, it Tosik Tet Saiyan says, So Yaakov woke up from his sleep by and said, Ochane indeed. Yeish hase, yeish Hashem, Hashem is here in this place. I didn't know. And moreover, he says, so what so what has he discovered, so to speak? Hashem is here in this place. What else does he say? Vayu Rava he he became fearful, he was gripped by, by awe and said, Manara Makamaza, how awesome is this place? Ain said this is nothing other than Kiim Baysalokim, the house of God, Vizash shara Shamaim, and the gates of heaven. So we see very clearly from these two psukim that as a result of Yaakov's experiences there, he came to an awareness of the special nature of the place. He calls it Hashem's house. He calls it the gates of heaven. Things that he didn't know before. Which prompts the Mephorashim to ask a simple question. So how do you know them now? I mean to say, what just happened? You had a dream. Okay, what happened in your dream? Hashem spoke to you. Okay, and then he wakes up and says, "This is none other than the house of God." Based on what? As if, as if to say, or to to, to frame the question. <coughs> Yaakov is not the first person to have to, to have a prophetic vision. He's not the first person for, that Hashem appears to him and speaks to him and, and promises him things. This took place in all and other locations, both to Avram and to Yitzhak. Neither of them responded to that experience by saying, well, if I had such an experience here, I must be in the house of God. Not necessarily. You're in your house. He just came to see you. And, 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 and you had a prophetic revelation. So how does, I mean, Jacob explicitly says, I never knew this, but I know it now. How does he know it now? How does experiencing prophecy make the place a house of God? And this—it's a very interesting question. One could read the parsha many times, as we do, and not—not not perhaps fully catch this point. It was absolute epiphany moment <coughs> for Yaakov. But based on what? Says Rabbi Minsberg Zatzal, Yaakov's understanding of the nature of the place—it didn't come from Hashem appearing to him, and it didn't come from Hashem talking to him or promising him anything. It came from the dream itself. What is happening in the dream? What's interesting is, the uh, Yaakov's Dream with the Ladder," it's not the only dream in the Torah, but it is the only dream in the Torah where the interpretation is not also presented in the Torah. If you think of all the other dreams, whether it's the butler and the baker or, or Pyro's dreams or Yosef's dreams, there's always an interpretation attached. The exception is our Parsha. Yaakov has a dream. The Possek doesn't say what it means, which is interesting. But what does it mean? And as he so often does, Reblaid Minzberg gives what, what one could call, uh, hopefully doing justice to what he's saying, <coughs> a natural explanation of, of, of what is happening here. And he says as follows. We are familiar with the terms or the domains uh, Shamaim and Aretz, heaven and earth. And how would we define them? Well, again, as simply as we can, Shamaim is where heavenly beings are, first and foremost, HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself, <coughs> and earth is where we are, is where people are. And from a certain point of view, never the twain shall meet, uh, as much as obviously we would say HaKadosh Baruch who supervises this world from up there but it remains up there and so does he and we remain down here and these are two discrete and distinct domains. And that's what Yaakov thought. But all that changed when he received this, this dream. Because what, what what is the dream? There's heaven there. There's earth there. And they're joined by a ladder. What the ladder represents, as we know, is that if you have two domains, so then they remain distinct. <coughs> but when you have two places, and there's a ladder joining A to B, we don't look upon them any more to the same degree as two domains. They are two different levels of the same domain, of the same abode. In other words, heaven now is the upper floor. Of the same abode. That's the full impact of what the ladder represents. It unifies these two planes to become one. And this is further uh, underscored by the fact that you have Malachim, who are heavenly beings, who as far as we know generally tend to reside in the heavens, and yet they're, they're constantly moving between one and the other, using these rungs, using these stairs. That means that they are present equally in both domains. (coughs) And that itself tells us that the distinction between heaven and earth is not as clear-cut as as we may have thought. They move from one floor to the other floor. And moreover, and this of course is Rashi's famous question, the Torah says that the malachim, v'hinei malachia Alukim olim, The Yardimbo. They went up. They were going up and going down. Well, as we know, and Rashi himself comments, one of the basic rules of physics is what goes up must come down. But one of the basic rules of metaphysics is that what goes down must come up. Because if you are a heavenly being, you start up. And therefore, Rashi paying attention to order here, and calling attention to order, asks... Why does it say that they were going up and down? It sounds like they started down here. It should have said Yardim Ve'olim. First down and then up. It sounds like they're based here. But why would they be based here? Because where do Malachim... Uh, where are they based? They're based around HaKadosh Baruch Hu. If they're based here, that means he's based here. And all of this gives Yaakov to understand that the fusion and the cohesion and the unification of these two realms is such that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is actually down here. And, the, and, of course, the subtext is this is largely thanks to Yaakov himself. Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov bring the divine presence. They start the process of bringing the divine presence down here. So, so Yaakov is both the agent for bringing the divine presence down here, and he's the first one to recognize uh, how fully it had happened. And that's why, Rashid, that's why Yaakov says As a result of this dream, I understand. A message you can receive from Hashem anywhere, if you know how. (coughs) But this dream tells me that the place where I am is Hashem's abode. That was the Chiddush, and this is the beginning of the conceptual and spiritual underpinnings of the Beis Hamikdash. And indeed, perhaps one may add, and it's it's again a very interesting thing, we say it the whole time. (coughs) Yaakov not only says that this place is Beis Elokim, right, Hashem's house. He also says it's Shar HaShamayim. right? That's Pasuk Ein The gates of heaven are here. Now, now, w- without getting too logistical, when seemingly in our experience, <coughs> the gates of anywhere always represent the outer extremity of that place. The gates of the city are at the edge of the city. The gates of a palace are at the edge of the palace. Which means that the gates of heaven are at the edge of heaven. But if Yaakov says that's here, it further underscores that, that, that heaven, in a sense, has extended downwards. And this, as surely as this is Hashem's house, <coughs> and if we associate heaven as where Hashem is, and if he's here, that means heaven has also travelled here. Which means when you, when you arrive here, you arrive at Shar HaShemayim. At the, great, at the gates of heaven. So, so this is uh, Reb Minsberg's um, wonderful comment. Again, so much to say on Yaakov's ladder, but as I said, very direct, very natural, uh, and deals with the psukim head-on, um, as, we, as, as we noted. So Yaakov has had his dream. Yaakov receives his promise, and then, on the next day, he continues on his way. And that is Empiric Kaf Pasuk Aleph, Perikaftes Pasuk Aleph, He picks up his legs, Kedem, and moves east. There is this pasuk seemingly could not seem simpler. Where is he going? He's heading east. But there is a comment of the Meshech which I believe we will do full justice to if we preface it by one or two other points. And let us begin, actually, by referring to uh, a halacha. It's a halacha in sukkah. Uh, So, never too early to prepare for sukkahs, so here we go. The very first Mishnah in sukkah, in fact, deals with this question. What is the maximum height of a sukkah? As we know, it's 20 amas, 20 cubits. That is to say, distance from the schach to the floor. Of course, if the whole thing is higher, then that's okay. But between the schach and the floor, there cannot be more than 20 amas. That is the halacha. It cannot be that high. And the question is why? The Gemara presents actually three approaches, one of which is the follows. In the name of Rabbi Zaira, One of which is the follows. Rabbi Zera says, you know, it's the nature of shade that at a certain point the sukkah is going to be so high that you're effectively in the shade of the walls. In other words, the, the schach will play minimal role in offering you shade because the higher the walls go, the more they themselves offer shade and the schach is just there on top, but it isn't really doing anything. (coughs) <coughs> needless to say, once again, there are technical uh, questions here, does it depend how wide the sukkah is? Presumably the wider it is, the, the, the taller you need to go before the walls take over but, uh, and the Gemara itself deals with those questions, we're, we're not going to get involved in that what we do see is that the, we're, the, the halacha is quite insistent that when you, not only should there be schach on top of the sukkah but the, the shade that you're in needs to be the shade provided by the schach not by the walls even though the walls are also part of the sukkah, but not to the same degree. Of course, we're moved to ask, what difference does it make? Why is this so important? To the, to the extent that if you really are in the shade of the walls, <coughs> the sukkah is possible. It's absolutely uh, disqualified. <laughs> this question is raised and discussed by the Orachlaner of Jakob Ettlinger, the Rav of Altona in the 1800s in Germany, Uh, one of the rebbe's of Rav Hirsch in his classic work Aruch L'Aner on Masecha Sukkah and he begins to to address this question in classic fashion by raising another question seemingly unrelated he takes us to the episode with Yosef and the Butler's Dream and we're very familiar with that episode but just to uh, remind ourselves of the the points that we need to uh, take with us (coughs) Um, Yosef interprets that the butler has a dream and and he's he's, uh, squeezing out grapes and he's putting it into a cup and giving it to Pharaoh and there's three of them and Yosef interprets that that in three days time you will be free. Okay. And then Yosef, in a sense, one could say, takes advantage of the situation and says, you know, I've been here a long time. You're leaving in three days. Please, will you mention me to Pharaoh? As we know, <coughs> Yosef then proceeded to spend another two years in jail. And it's clear and explicated from Chazal and, and the Mefarshim that those extra two years were somehow a response to what he said to the Sarhamashkim, which leaves us somewhat disconcerted. Because after all, as much as we know that a person needs to have bitochah, a person needs to, to trust in Hashem, Hashem will help him, Hashem will rescue him, etc. and so forth. But is there not a concept called hishtatlus? <coughs> is there not also the requirement that a person invest and involve himself and act diligently and responsibly and sometimes using initiative and, and, and so on and so forth? That's part of it. It's a, it's, it's, that's the harmony of the two things. A person is not, generally speaking, entitled to, to invest zero Heshtadlus and have only betochent. It's not considered to be acceptable, which raises the question. I, I mean, Yosef does not seem to have overindulged in Heshtadlus. I mean, he did not uh, do anything more than say, you're leaving, please ask. It, it seems to be the most reasonable thing that a person could do under the circumstances. What should he have done? Said nothing? It's a very difficult question. Many answers have been given to this question. <coughs> the Orach L'Aner's own answer, I think, is so illuminating. It's, uh, it's, it's an absolute uh, wonderful thing. Says the Orach We know that Bitochon doesn't just mean I'm doing what I'm doing and then I'm sure Hashem will do the following for me. It's not appropriate always that Bitochen says that I trust that Hashem will have do that outcome for a very simple reason. You don't even know that that's necessarily good for you. You can't determine or dictate what Hashem will decide for you. What you can do is act what you think is the best outcome for you and then the rest you leave up to Hashem. But your bitochon is, obviously, he can do whatever he wants. He might do what you want, but he might do something else. The bitochon is a much broader thing <coughs> that Hashem will oversee my efforts and bring them to a good outcome. We don't always know what the good outcome is. And really what that means is as much as we invest in his shtadlus, but the results we leave up to Hashem. That's pure bitochon. And anything other than that is, and the, as the Chazunish just says quite explicitly, is, um, is, is, is a misrepresentation. of It can lead to a lot of disillusionment and it's not correct anyway. You can never consign or dictate what the result will be and say, I, I, I trust that Hashem will do outcome X. Maybe Y is better for you. But the truth is, says Lanair, even when a person understands you do what you need to do and then leave the rest up to Hashem to decide what is the best outcome for you there is yet another element, namely here we are saying, <coughs> saying I've done my hishtadlus and then the result I'll leave up to Hashem I hope it will be such and such and I trust that this hishtadlus will bring about the best result that's also restricting that's also ultimately a flawed approach to Bitochon, why? Because in this very same way that you're not entitled to say, I'm sure that Hashem will bring about result X. You're also not entitled to say, I'm sure that whatever Hashem brings about, it will be because I'm involved in Avenue A. Because you don't know that. You have to be involved. And if you think A is the most reasonable, that's what you should do. But, but Bitochen means not only Hashem will bring about the result that he chooses is best for me, but he will bring about it through the means that he determines are best for me. And it might not be the means that I'm involved in right now. <coughs> which, is, which is, on the one hand, it sounds like a, a, a more demanding level of Bitochen, but I don't think that's true. I think it's actually a more liberating uh, understanding to Bitochen, because it frees you from... From locking on to a specific route, you don't know that's the route, and and haven't we all experienced or know of others who invested so much down a certain route, and in the end, the res- even the result they wanted came from a completely different route. So, in a sense, not only is the result to be left up to Hashem, with, after our Ashtadus, even the means that that bring about the result should also be left up to Hashem. So. What does this have to do with the sukkah? Well, the sukkah is a model for trust in Hashem. It is referred to by the Zohar as Tzila di Menusa, <coughs> the shade of faith. And the sukkah has two parts to it. Walls and schach. What do the walls represent and what do the schach represent? Of, of course, the Kedushah is in the schach. That's where the mitzvahs are and that's the, where the lishmah is. <coughs> because the shade of the schach represents HaKadosh Baruch Hu overseeing things. Now the Schach rests on walls because Hashem overseeing thing rests on walls also. What are the walls? The walls are your Ishtadlus. If you didn't make walls, the Schach will hover in thin air and you can't expect it to stand up. Which means in the same way that you need to make walls to put the Schach on, you need to be involved in Hishtadlus in order for the Bitochon to bring to bring Hashem's blessing but the question is after you've made your walls and after you've made the schach in whose shade are you? the shade of the schach or the shade of the walls? In other words, it's one thing to say you need to construct the walls and on that you put the schach. But if, you, if the walls are so high that the schach might as well not be there because you're in any case in the shade of the walls, what have you done? You've over-invested <coughs> ex- exclusively in this particular area of Ishtadlus. And the schach, of course, the schach is up there somewhere but my shade is the wall. It's not the schach. And that's Apostle Sukkah. Because... This really depicts the idea that we're saying. As much as you need the walls to, upon which to place the schach, but you always need to be in the shade of the schach. HaKadosh Baruch Hu will decide exactly how things work, whether it's through the walls that I built or through something else. It, it is such a fundamental uh, concept within Bitochen, and I, I'm not sure that it's discussed <coughs> so much, but beyond anything else, as I said, I think it's very helpful for those who, who, who wish to engage in the Concert of Bitochen meaningly. And with this in mind, of course, very carefully, but nevertheless, with this in mind, the L'Aner takes us back to Yosef. What did we see with Yosef? He he interprets the butler's dream, and the butler's leaving in three days. Now there's an opening here. And it's an opening that any responsible person should take, and that is to ask the butler to remember you to paro. Says the Arachlaner, that is kosher Hishadlus. What, what what more could you ask of Yosef? So wherein lies the problem? Says Arachlaner, and it's <coughs> it's 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 a careful reading of the Pasuk, but it really stands out. In Peric Mem, if we if we have the, 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 the Chumash available. The end of Parshish In Perik Mem, Posuk Yud Dalet. Perik Mem, Posuk Yud Dalet. That's where uh, Yosef has just interpreted the dream. In three days' time, you'll be, you'll be yet again handing the cup back to Paro. And then what does Yosef say in Posuk Yud Dalet? And every word counts here. Ki imzachartani itcha? Ki-im, zechatani itcha, remember me, kashay tablacha, v'asisanaim adi chesed, al-paro, and remember me to paro, and get me out of here. What are the, what are the <coughs> pardon me, ki words? They are the words ki-im. Because ki-im denotes exclusivity. Ki-im means it can only be this way. What is Yosef doing? Again, it's a it's a delicate point, and we're talking about Yosef, but there's a lesson to be learned. Yosef isn't saying to the butler, "Please, will you remember me?" He isn't saying, "You know, not is kareni, please remember." He says, "Ki im zechartani." Ki im means, "I will own." The only way I'm going to get out of jail is if you remember me, and then mention me to Pharaoh. So, what did Yosef do? The Heshtadlis was correct to ask him, but Yosef put himself in the shade of the walls because what he's saying is, I can't for the life of me imagine another way that Hashem will take me out of here if it isn't through you mentioning me to Pyro. And that is what resulted in Yosef being punished with another two years. And what happened over the course of these subsequent two years? He realized that the butler had forgotten him. He realized that As much as he'd pinned his hopes exclusively on the on the butler as an agency through which to get him out that wasn't happening and Joseph says I guess I made a mistake I was right to ask him but clearly this is not the way and once in a sense he backed off from from locking in exclusively to the it could only happen through the butler he realized well it can happen actually through anyway at that point, it, it then proceeded to happen through the butler, <coughs> because the, the, the truth was that the butler was there uh, in, in order to get him out. But to say to the butler, I can only leave if you are the one who take, who, through whom I leave, that's not true at all. And this, then, is his understanding of Yosef, very, very profound. What does this have to do with Parshas Vayetze? Well. If we come back to the beginning of Perik Kaftes, uh, and it's the Pasuk that we read, let's read it again because there's, there's a nuance here which is picked up on by the Meshachma. But what does the Pasuk say? Yaakov raglav Picks up his legs, and he, where does he go? Arzu to, Kedem, to the land, to the east. It's very interesting because the Pasuk doesn't really specify where uh, to the east he's going it almost sounds like he he could be going anywhere as long as he's traveling east which is not true because we happen to know that there's somewhere very specific that he's going namely to the land of horan and moreover he's going somewhere specific there to lavan's house all of this has been told to him (coughs) and moreover all of this has been told to us the opening of the parsha by Yaakov Sheva We've already been told that he's going to Choron. So the Pasuk opens by telling us already, <coughs> specifying Choron. And then 20, you know, 20 Opsakim later, where is he going? East. Anywhere in particular? Sounds like no. But we know that yes. And that's why the Meshachma says, Yaakov's uh, focus on how exactly he would succeed from this point on, how he would evade Aesop's anger, how he would then succeed now in the future, it underwent a change on this very point. Namely, as he's running away, where's he running to? To Haran. Why? Because he has to get to Haran. Why? Because what, if anything is good is going to happen to him, it's going to happen in Haran. There was a certain exclusivity of focus on that location specifically. When I get there, good things will happen. Hashem Hashem will then bring blessing to me. In the interim, he he was the beneficiary of a wonderful assurance from Hashem. Hashem said, I will be with you. I will take care of you. The, the, The impact of that assurance and of that appearance it brought about a change in Yaakov's focus. Namely, once Hashem has told him (coughs) he's going to be with him, so then Yaakov is no longer focused on any one particular location. Because if Hashem is with you, so then you'll be okay. Now, of course, you need to go somewhere. You can't just stay where you are. And there's no better direction than the one you were heading in the first place. But we see that the specific location of Choron has been de-emphasized. In, in Yaakov's vision. And it, and it really does uh, resonate with the idea of the Orch Laner, that, that the higher level of trust that he had attained in Hashem, it then it then took any critical emphasis or or, or identification of any particular location or person or whatever it is. Before that dream, where are you headed? Haram After this dream, where are you headed? East. I'll be fine. Hashem will be with me. I have to do. I have to do what I have to do. <coughs> but but who knows? Who knows where it will come from? And the the medrash in fact adduces the verse which we say in Tehillim that Yaakov was rich, the first one to say this. Where will my, will my help come from? In the end, the help comes from Hashem, and and, and one engages in what needs to engage but with the understanding that ultimately the blessing can come from where not only the blessing is what Hashem chooses, but comes from where Hashem chooses. It. So these are uh, wonderful comments from the, the Arch L'Aner, dovetailing in with the Meshachachmah, and that leaves us with time for one uh, final uh, short discussion, and that relates to the first of the Shvatim. Of course, the Shvatim, the tribes, uh, start to be born in this week's Parsha, uh, and that is in Perik Kaft let's see Reuven, Perik Kaftes Posik Lamid base. <coughs> Perik kaftes posuk lamid base. First to be born. Vatarle Vatele Bain Kaftes Lamid Base. So Leah conceives she has a child, she has a son, Vatikrash and she calls him Ki for she said, Kira Hashembaaniv because that for Hashem saw in my affliction Kiatoya Vanishi, now my husband will love me, I brought him a child, and there was uh, hopefully that will, will help her situation. That is a straightforward reading of the Pasuk. <coughs> Rashi comments Vatikrash she called him Ruven. Rabbi Seinu Pirshu, if you look in, this is actually coming from the Gemara in Massech Esprochus in the Our rabbis explained, Amra, you know what Leah means when she said with the name Re'uvein? She means Re'u ma ben beni chami. See what is between my son and my father in law's son. Who is her father in law? Yitzhak, And who's the son that she's referring to? Esav. See the difference between my son and Esav. In what way? Shemachar b'chorah le willingly parted with the b'chorah to Yaakov. but not my son. Lo Yosef. He did not sell it to Yosef. It was confiscated. The b'chorah was confiscated from Reuven to Yosef. alam. <coughs> did, not, did not protest not only did he not protest that Yosef had overtaken him as the firstborn he even put himself out to remove Yosef to extract him from the pit that's the Rashi it's from the Gemara there's just one problem well there's more than one problem but we'll start with the first one here is Rashi giving us the background to the name Reuven the problem is, this is one of those rare instances where we don't seem to need Rashi, because the Torah itself gives us the background to the name. If you read the pasuk again, Vatar she has a son, the <coughs> Why? Why is he called Ruvain? Ki because she said ki Hashem ba'ani. Ruvain ra'ah Hashem, Hashem ishi. Hashem saw in my affliction, now my husband will love me. Whatever is the meaning behind that reason, but the reason is stated. So why does Rashi, why the Chazal, and and certainly why does Rashi feel the need to to provide a reason for something where the Apostle itself has already provided it? It is true, if we're very, very precise, the base of Reuven fits in better with, with the reason from the Gemara because if it's uh, about Hashem so my affliction, so the base there is a prefix. So it should just be re- Re'on, just like Shimon is Kishoma. So, uh, okay, I mean, that, that, that those are le- which are pointed out by, by the Mepharshim. But there's something else happening here, and it's said over in the name of the Vilna Gaon. Says the Gaon, the Gemara knows there's another reason. And it's compelling enough that Rashi even brings it in his parish on the Chumash. But how do we know? Look at all of the other tribes. You will see. (coughs) There is a reason given for their name. We get their name. We get the reason given for their name. The reason always comes first. Look at the next Pasuk. What did she say? She said, She said, And that's why she called him Shimon. Reason leads to name. Next pasuk. My my husband will now accompany me, will be closer with me. She called him Levi. And so on. Fourth pasuk Lamed (coughs) Hay. Now this time I will thank Hashem. He's called Yehuda. So the relationship in the presentation of reasons to names is the reason is always mentioned before the name. The one exception is our pasuk. What does it say? It's called and then we get the reason. But how can there be a name before the reason? If the name if the name is a result of the reason, so like all other cases, it should have given the reason and the name, but it doesn't. We have the name. We also have the reason, which means it is a reason, but it's not the only reason. He's already Reuven before Leia gives whatever reason that she gives. There's another reason here. That's why the Gemara uh, picks up on this and presents this reason. And that's why Rashi quotes it as well. Very unique situation. Again, it's a product of attention to detail. I will mention there is one other place where we have a similar phenomenon. And this is a question that was uh, asked of me going back something like 30 years ago by uh, someone who maybe I believe, is, will be well uh, known to you. His name is Yigal Salik. Uh, he's famous for his uh, contribution to, uh, to Jewish music. I need to refer. But uh, I'm, I was and am very friendly with the son, and I was visiting uh, almost, it's got to be 29 or 30 years ago, and he, and he, he, he was talking with me, and he, he says to me, <coughs> Look in Parshas Beretius, Perik Dalit Pasik Aleph. And, okay, so we look there, Beretius, Perik Dalit Pasuk Aleph. Okay, so Adam is so he's, he knows Chava, he's intimate with Chava, She conceives and she bears Kain. Konisi ish hashem. She says, I have acquired a person together with Hashem. So Yigal asked. The Pasat calls in Kayan before telling us why. And here actually it's more extreme because uh, in our pasuk with Reuven, it says she called him Reuven because she said. So, syntactically, the reason in the pasuk is connected back to the name. Here, they seem to be two sequential things. She called him Kain and she said. Even if it's related, we have a similar thing. Most people focus on the Reuven case as the one where the name came before the reason. <coughs> but as Yigal pointed out, you have it as far back as partial aspirations. It could be that in partial aspirations people have not yet settled in to learning so much to be able to notice things like this. It could be they have other things on their mind, but Eagle noticed it. Uh, actually, over the years, I did develop an answer to this question. It's a little bit involved. In fact, it's so complicated that I'm actually suspicious of it. So uh, I would prefer to leave the question as a good question and uh, the answers, as we know, are in good hands. The only matter that remains <coughs> outstanding for us is having dealt with, shall we say, quote-unquote, the traffic issues in the Pasuk. That is to say, the Pasuk gives a reason and then, and then the Chazal give a reason, but we already have a reason. How do you understand that there's more to the background than, uh, than the reason given in the Pasuk? The name came before. But the content of the reason given by Chazal is itself um, very perplexing. Because what is Leah saying? She's saying that, consider the difference between my son and Esav. Esav sold the Bechorah. Okay, people either do or don't know that at that stage. And then, says Leah, but you know, when loses the, when my son Reuven loses the Bechorah to Yosef, he doesn't take it badly, or he doesn't bear a grudge. He even tries to, to, to uh, remove him from the pit. <coughs> I think it's fair to say there's a lot of catching up that people need to do at that stage in order to fully understand what Leia is saying. Leia says, my son loses the birthright. Firstly, why? To whom? There are no other brothers yet. He hasn't made his mistake yet. In fact, if you're going to call him after uh, how he didn't feel that bad when he lost the Bechorah, why not tell him not to make the mistake? And if you're going to say that he doesn't bear a grudge to Yosef, well, does Yosef know why Reuven's called Reuven? Maybe Yosef could avoid getting thrown in the pit in the first place. And so on and so forth. <coughs> there are so many events <coughs> that are wired into the interpretation of this name, there's no way that, that Leia could have said this in a way which would not completely compromise people's ability to make free decisions <coughs> from that point onwards. Very, very difficult. And it's for this reason that the Shah insists that what is happening here is that as much as Leia ha- is a conduit for prophecy here, we're familiar with the concept of a person who gives prophecy without fully knowing what it is, the impact or the, the, the extent of what it is that they're saying. Nisnaba veloyoda my nisnaba. She gave nevuah. she didn't fully know what she's saying, which is itself very interesting because she is giving this as a reason for the name, but she cannot fully ex- explicate it. We find this idea later on in Chumash Bereshis, and it must be that really what Leia is saying is, this one is different to Esav. Now, the full, the full explication of how different he is will only be appreciated when, as history unfolds, and she could not address that explicitly at that time, and, pres- and presumably she didn't even know herself what exactly those events would be. All she knows is contained within Ru'uven is whatever will happen with him, he's going to react differently than Asav. It was compacted in that way. (coughs) It was yet an avu. But the question that remains is, if no one, including Leia, exactly knew how Ru'uven was different than Asav, so then why make a point of it? Why wire it into his name? And to this... Rabbi Yaakov of Lisa in his parish Emes, Emes Liakov on the goddess of Shas, explains that through this, Leah was helping Reuven. Reuven was in a dangerous spot. He was the firstborn. So far in the experiences of the Avos, the firstborns got moved to the side because they, they made uh, terrible choices. <coughs> and in a sense, they, they got sidelined from the future and the younger son pre- proceeded. That's what happened to Ishmael. That's what happened to Esau. And it's explained even uh, more from a, a Makshava point of view that in a sense, they drew away the impurities that were yet latent in the Avos, leaving the second one as the refined product. So it was with Ishmael. So it was with Esau. And now, Yaakov has his children. And the first one to come out is Reuven. Being the first born historically is now an uncomfortable position to be in. Because <coughs> your precedent for two generations back is that, is that you you end up somehow to the side. Now, of course, things changed in Ruven's time. Yaakov was the first one that none of his children were excluded from the program. But, but that needed, a, that transition needed enabling. It needed facilitating. And the first move of facilitating the idea <coughs> that Reuven would not be like Esau, he wouldn't act like Esau, he wouldn't, he wouldn't share the same fate as someone like Aesov was the calling of Reuven, giving him that name, <coughs> with some compacted nevua saying he's not like Esau. Again, details would, would yet unfold when events unfolded. <coughs> but, but, uh, but affirming and asserting that this would not be a repeat of Asa, that was itself helped through the process of Nebuah, and in that Nebuah energy putting it into him to ensure that even if he didn't be the bechor, he would yet always be one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So these are some of the uh, discussions from Parshas Vayetzeh, much more to say, but uh, we'll leave it over here for this evening. Um, I wish you all a good evening, a wonderful week ahead. We'll meet again in Mitzah Hashem next week. All the very best.